0: Well, have you ever done a complete 180? I don't mean on a skateboard or in a car. Those might be fun. But I mean on an issue or a a position. Maybe a political issue. Maybe you used to be a hardcore Republican and now you're a soft Democrat or something like that. Or you've moved from pro-choice to pro-life. Or maybe with a diet you've gone from vegetarian to repenting and embracing meat, (laughs) or vice versa. Maybe in religion and faith, maybe, maybe, well, that's one way of thinking about becoming a Christian, isn't it? None of us are born that way. We're not born Christians. There's a point in time, if we're truly in Christ, then our sins are forgiven. A point in time in which we've come to see our need for a Savior, come to see that Jesus is that Savior, and we embrace Him. We call it conversion. It's a turning, a turning regarding sin, a turning regarding Jesus, a turning regarding salvation. Well, in the Bible, we get to witness many 180s. Some are more important than others. Some are more instantaneous than others. One of the most important, but not exactly instantaneous, was that of Peter, the Apostle Peter. In the mid-60s A.D., the Apostle Peter wrote a letter to Christians who were scattered in Roman provinces of Asia Minor. We call it First Peter. We've been studying this letter for some time now. He wrote this letter to these churches and these Christians scattered abroad in the Roman region to strengthen them in their suffering and to prepare them for even greater persecution that was apparently about to come. And the most prominent note that Peter strikes as he tries to encourage them, his most frequent go-to in his tool belt, you could say, was that of Christ's sufferings. He encourages them in their sufferings by holding up the gem of Christ's sufferings in all its glorious many facets and holding it out to them for hope and encouragement. Now the irony of Peter writing about suffering like that shouldn't be missed by those of us who have read through the gospel accounts. When Peter wrote about suffering in 1 Peter, and specifically the sufferings of Christ and also the sufferings of the church, he was demonstrating his own 180, a different way of thinking than he had before. Approximately 30 years before Peter wrote this letter, we find in Matthew 16, Jesus asking his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And various answers are given. And then Peter replies, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus commends him for that. He got it right. Then it says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the religious leaders. And be killed. And on the third day be raised. Matthew says, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And then Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're not thinking heavenly, but merely humanly and earthly. It's right after that that Jesus tells his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Peter didn't get it that day. Neither Jesus' sufferings nor the sufferings that would follow for the disciples, for Peter himself. Jesus told him of his own coming sufferings, Peter's own coming sufferings, at the end of John. In John's gospel account, this is now after Jesus' death and resurrection, we read in John 21, Jesus saying, Peter, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Kind of a weird way of putting what he was getting at, but here's what he was getting at. John tells us what he was getting at. This he said to show by what kind of death he would glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said, follow me. Church history tells us Peter was crucified, perhaps even upside down, because he thought it unworthy to be crucified right way up like his Lord. Now with all that in mind, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, if you have a Bible with you this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to read two passages today. In chapter 4, there are two sections that are very similar that are separated by a few verses in between. And so today we'll combine those two passages that share a similar theme of suffering. In fact, they not, just, they not only share the similar theme of suffering, but they, they're very similar in their flow, in their development of the passage, of the ideas. So rather than talk about suffering and God's instruction for us here in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6, one week, and then skip a week, and then come back to basically what is almost the same exact thing for the next five or so verses, uh, we'll combine them today. We'll read 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6, and then verses 12 to 19. And here's what, God, what God's word says for us. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Remember Peter? Not so, Lord. No way, Lord. It'll never happen to you. But now, Peter writes, Christ suffered in the flesh. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 7 through 11. Let's read verse 12, though. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's God's word for us this morning. And it begins with this verb here, this command to arm yourselves. Chapter 4, verse 1. Just like you might suspect, that's military language. That's taking up arms. It's preparing for battle by stashing arms, by stockpiling the weapons. The coming battle that Peter is sort of hinting at here is, of course, one of suffering and persecution that they've already encountered. But the real battle, the real battle is one within. It's not on the outside. Yes, there's an attack from the outside, But for the Christian, the true battle is within. Because the weapons here aren't literal weapons, of course, like swords or knives or or stones, rocks. Neither are the weapons words. We'll get them. We'll beat them with our words. Or, Or legislation. We'll get them. We'll take over Rome and make up our own rules. No, what Peter commends to us are weapons of the mind, you could say. He says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. I'm fascinated by how much First Peter, and really the whole Bible, focuses its commands on how to think and how to feel. Yeah, there's plenty in the Bible about what to do and and what to do with your hands, right? What to give to people and how to serve them. And and those are action verbs. But what is remarkable to me, because we already know about those action verbs, what's remarkable to me is how often overlooked it can be to see that when the Bible starts preaching to us and really giving us the, the musts and the oughts and the therefores, it so often follows, here's what you think. Here's how you feel. Here's how you set your mind. Here's how you fix your hope. In chapter 1, verse 13, it was be serious-minded. You don't do that with a hand or with a muscle. You do it with the brain and with the heart. In chapter 2, verse 2, it's longed for God's word. Yes, that implies going to it and drinking from it, reading it and digesting it. But the verb is actually long for it. That's inside. That's internal. In chapter 2, verse 13 and following, multiple times we have that command there to honor, to show honor. And yes, that that can be in actions in many ways, but it's also something of the heart, isn't it? As it is in chapter 3, verse 1. In the church, we should have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love. Yes, actions that show that, but a sentiment and mindset that's behind those actions and really precedes them. Arm yourself with thinking. Christ-like thinking. This is similar to Paul in Philippians 2 when he says, Have this mind in yourselves which was in Christ Jesus. Think like him. He was a servant, a servant to the utmost. Be like him. Think like him. To put it in Peter's terms, stash away piles of Jesus bullets, missiles that are drawn from the mind of Christ. Make this your stockpile, nuggets of how Jesus thinks and feels, his attitude and perspective. And that's an ongoing thing. It's not something you buy and get and then have and keep. We have to cultivate this kind of thinking, right? It's a process, an ongoing process. I mean, in one sense, if we're Christians, we've already had this 180 take place. A 180 has already occurred where we've turned from sin and turned to Jesus and turned to his body, the church. And yet... In another sense, we Christians are continually to recalibrate the compass of our souls according to his plan, according to his will, according to his word and to his ways. We are not yet home. We're between two worlds. And so we have to set our mind on things above. We have to set our hope fully on the grace that will come when Jesus returns. We have to cultivate a different way of thinking. Christians are to cultivate a different way of thinking about, well, I think at least four things here in 1 Peter 4. We cultivate a different way of thinking first about Jesus and his call. About Jesus and his call. Verse 1 said, since Christ suffered in the flesh. Those are pregnant words, aren't they? We've seen that going through 1 Peter. We know that the word suffer here isn't just an unfortunate thing about Jesus in history. It's not just a lamentable thing. It's not even just an example for us. But Jesus suffered in the flesh is a shorthand way of describing Jesus' servantry leading up to the cross and going to the cross and dying on the cross. And, of course, you can't have the cross without the resurrection in the Bible, and so the cross itself functions like a shorthand for the whole gospel weekend of Friday's crucifixion and Sunday's resurrection. We Christians had to come to a different way of thinking about Jesus and the Messiah specifically. The Messiah, Christ, suffered in the flesh. The Messiah suffered. He suffered as a human being, God in flesh for us, righteous for us, and dying in our place. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, Peter says, and then get this, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now there are different, transla- uh, different interpretations of that phrase. What does it mean? Whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It could be about Jesus. He didn't sin. But then why would it say he ceased from sin? He never sinned from the first start. It's not about Jesus. It's about us. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That sounds like it could be, well, saying that anyone who's had any kind of suffering has sin just obliterated in their life. It stops. But that's not what it means. What it means is that whoever has embraced Christ... And his cross has also embraced his path, his way. And that path is a way of righteousness and suffering. The road to Calvary is one of righteousness. It's one of suffering. Jesus suffering righteously for us and as an example for us. So Peter's saying here, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, has given up on sin, is another way of wording it. Again, what does that mean, though? Has given up on sin. We Christians, when we came to Christ, did we give up sin? No matter how well intended we were about giving up sin when we came to Christ, every Christian has since sinned. But it's not a, what we would call an ontological statement. It's not the same thing as saying every Christian who suffers has completely and finally stopped sinning. It's more like the teacher who says in class, we do not chew gum in this class. Or dad says at the kitchen table to his son, we wear shirts at the table. We do not come to the table without shirts. Neither of those, the teacher nor the dad, mean that it's impossible for it to happen. Kids can show up at the dinner table without a shirt. And kids can chew gum in class. But in a rhetorical way, we sometimes say we don't do that. And Peter's doing that. He's talking about what should be and what generally is. We Christians, when we came to Christ, we embraced a suffering Savior... So we went his way. And going his way meant embracing suffering. It also meant embracing righteousness and leaving aside sin. Not perfectly so, but we Christians, we gave up on sin. That's what it means to come to Christ, in part. We gave up on sin. You didn't come to Christ with sin in your back pocket, hiding some from him. You gave it all to him, did you not? Jesus said, as we've already quoted, whoever will come to me will take up his cross and follow me. He'll go my way. Remember he said in Luke 14 that when we come to him, we have to hate even our own lives or else we can't be his disciple. He said, no man builds a tower without first considering the cost. So Christian, would-be Christian, consider the cost before building this tower, before heading down this path. Count the cost of what it would mean to follow Christ, to go his way, to be his disciple. We Christians have come to see a different way of thinking about Jesus and his call. And that different way of thinking about Jesus and his call is one that, again, needs constant recalibration. That's what we're doing this morning in his word. That's what we do together in community groups. That's what we do when we sing and when we pray for each other. Christians are also to cultivate a different way of thinking about, secondly, sin and fulfillment. Sin and fulfillment. Verses 1 through 4 point us in that direction. Verse 1 ended, we have ceased from sin, given up on sin. Verse 2, so as, see that connection? So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter's been plucking on this string many times since he's begun this letter. Like in chapter 1, verse 14, when he said, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You've been born again, born from above. You have God as your father. Walk in his ways. He'll later go on to say, Be holy as your father's holy. He's the judge, and so live out the rest of your time in fear, in holy awe before him. Go his way. Do his work. Put away, as he says in chapter 2, verse 1, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander that used to describe you. It shouldn't anymore. And then as he comes to verse 3 of chapter 4, he puts it this way. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He's talking about your former way. You already had enough time with sin, didn't you? He's not commending a, a sinful former life. He's not saying, ah, you, you got to sow your wild oats, and that's a good thing, but now you've got to go to Jesus and have forgiveness and follow in his steps. He's not saying that, again, in a rhetorical way. He's saying, you've done enough sin for a lifetime, haven't you? I have too. We've done enough sin. With the rest of our time, let's follow Christ. How do you think about the rest of your time? That's what it says in verse 2. The rest of the time. Remember, Moses prayed in Psalm 90, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts into wisdom. Everyone in this room has a specific number of days left. It could be one could be a thousand it could be a million i don't know but what we have we have to the lord and for the lord from the lord it's for the lord we've done enough for ourselves we've done enough for sin and for satan and for the world but now we live according to his ways not according to the old ways look at that list he gives there in verse three Doing what the Gentiles want to do, such as living in sensuality, and passions, and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. In pagan Rome, these things were all packaged up neatly into some specific practices. These things all went hand in glove. He's not just rattling off a list of random sins, the most extreme ones he can think of, but this in Paul's day, in Peter's day, in first century Rome, these were common practices. Our lists today don't look quite like this. But we all have our lists. Your list might look different than Peter's list here. Your list might look different than my list or someone else's. But we all have our list of what we used to do and how we used to decide what we used to do. It's either going to be oriented according to human passions, verse 2, or the will of God. It's either going to be what the Gentiles want to do, verse 3, or what God wants us to do. Do you see how this is all oriented towards fulfillment and pleasure and satisfaction? It takes faith to trust God at his word and believe that in his presence, as the fullness of joy, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Sin has pleasure for a season, but with the Lord, there is lasting joy and highest pleasures, even if they're sometimes more delayed gratifications. But we no longer as Christians decide what to do based on instant gratification. We don't decide what to do based on mere urgings as though we're animals with animal-like instincts or something. We decide what to do based on God's word, the will of God. This is what we do. You've already had enough time making all the rules, haven't you? You've already had enough time seeking instant and empty pleasure, haven't you? We Christians, we go God's way. We have a different perspective on sin and fulfillment, even if we're made fun of for it. Verse 4 says... With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them anymore, implied, when you don't join them anymore in the same flood of debauchery. And so they malign you. In first century Rome, things were not so neatly distinguished between what's public and what is private. So today, yes. There's this concern that you could get too private in your public workplace or a politician could get too private in his public service. Generally speaking, we like these things separate. And that's probably good. In first century Roman times, these things weren't separate. The private was the public. The religion was connected to the social sphere in the political sphere. We've said again and again as we've studied this. The worship of Caesar as God was tied up with the economy, was tied up with trading, was tied up with social graces. And when Christians refuse to go that way, when Christians refuse, Christians refuse to buy and sell in conjunction with orgy drinking idolatry parties, then there Cast aside. They're maligned. They're mocked. They're misrepresented. Things have changed. No matter how hard the sacrifice is, we Christians have to go God's way, even when they're surprised. I wonder what changed when you became a Christian? What changed? Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you grew up with godly parents and maybe you came to faith at a young age. You never had a season of outright rebellion. And so me asking you that question, what changed when you became a Christian? You might say, I don't know. I don't know exactly at what age I was changed on the inside. And I saw some more fruit, but I'm not exactly sure. It wasn't this black and white thing. It wasn't night and day. That's okay. That's okay. I'm not asking that question so much for someone like that. Others may answer that question, what changed when you became a Christian? By thinking of certain arbitrarily taboo cultural things that a more fundamentalist church might expect you to give up. So someone says, I gave up line dancing when I became a Christian. Another one says, I gave up cards when I became a Christian. Another one says, I gave up secular music when I was a Christian. I had to throw my collection in the trash. These were the days before electronic copies of things. We had to actually put our records in the trash and break them as a sign of our repentance before the Lord, like I did. In fact, I think I bought the Led Zeppelin 4 album about four times because I kept... (laughs) Being okay with it, nah, repenting and then being okay with it. <laughs> I'm not talking about that kind of change. I'm talking about a kind of change that's actually far more radical than you getting rid of your music collection. What changed when you became a Christian? Friend, if you can't think of anything right now, are you sure you're a Christian? Are you sure he gave you a new heart? Are you sure you're his? Are you sure you're one of the obedient children? That's all there is, is obedient children. Oh, we're imperfectly obedient, but that's the description. Obedient children. We who suffer in the flesh, we went the Calvary road. It's the road of forgiveness, yes. And it's the road of suffering and righteousness. When we came to Christ, we gave up sin. Did you keep some back? Oh, I know we all do. We all have. None of this is perfect. Not finally so. But what has changed? What's changed since you became a Christian? Has anything changed in a while? Are you growing? Are you being fed? Are you like that First Peter 2, 2 baby being nursed at the mother's milk in the word and growing thereby and being satisfied in it? Christian, what do you need to be done with? What do you need to be done with? For the cause of Christ and for his glory, according to his will, what do you need to be done with once and for all? Or just what do you need to fight harder, to attempt to kill, to mortify the deeds of the flesh, as Paul says in Romans 8. I wonder how much of a factor other people are for you. I wonder how much of a factor consequences are for you. That leads to the third thing Peter talks about here. Christians are to cultivate a different way of thinking about persecution and trials. Persecution and trials. We saw persecution being discussed in verse 4. They malign you. You don't go their way anymore. You don't do what they do anymore. They malign you. They not only malign you, they cast you out. You're no longer in the system. You're no longer a part of the group. You're on the periphery. You're, you're disenfranchised. We have to realize that suffering in 1 Peter is primarily, it's first and foremost a suffering via persecution in the Christian life. Suffering for being a Christian. In fact, that's a phrase Peter uses in verse 16. If you suffer as a Christian, that doesn't stand out to us like it should. It's remarkable that Peter uses that word Christian here. Because, get this, this is only one of three places in all the Bible where the word Christian is used. The first time was in Acts 11, where it says, In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. But it wasn't a name they came up with. They were called Christians because they followed Christ. So they were like christ like little crumbs of Christ. It was a term of derision. Agrippa uses it in Acts 26 when he says to Paul, You're just about to persuade me to become a Christian. Probably not putting it in the nicest way he could. But now here Peter, in 1 Peter 4.16 says, if any of you suffer as a Christian, he's embracing that term of derision from the world and making it its own. The Christians were slowly over time embracing this word of derision because they were glad to be called the crumbs of Christ, the little pieces of Christ in this world. We Christians follow Christ, even through a fiery trial. Look at verse 12 of chapter 4. There Peter introduces what's maybe a different kind of trial coming their way. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The fiery trial here is probably a heightened level. Of the kind of persecution they were already facing. They were facing persecution so far on a social level, on a, an informal level, a friendship level, community level. It wasn't yet, as Peter writes this, law to persecute Christians. Persecution of Christians didn't come until the great fire of Rome, in which Nero blamed the Christians for starting. And then Nero led the way with state-sponsored persecution in an attempt to to make extinct this movement of Christ. So as Peter writes this, that is brewing. It's on the horizon. Peter is maybe a year or two away from himself being crucified. And of course then it is full-on state-sponsored persecution under crazy Nero. Nero. That's about to come, and they shouldn't be surprised when it does. There are always degrees of persecution for Christians in various places at various times. It's good for us to be aware of what's happening today. A wonderful website for that with a magazine that you can subscribe to is Voice of the Martyrs. You can there go and do research and see which countries are the most persecuting or how many Christians died last year for the cause of Christ. You can read specific stories of churches being burned or kids being burned inside of cars. It's good for us to be aware of that. And it's also good for us to not think it's always out there or it might come someday, but we're a long ways away. Remember, as Peter writes this, the persecution wasn't yet official. It didn't yet mean imprisonment. It didn't yet mean Roman officials doing beatings. And it didn't yet mean martyrdom. Even though that happened a little bit here and there before Peter writes this, like with Stephen in Acts 7. But by and large, that didn't happen. It might happen. And so it is with us. We're not imprisoned for being Christian. We're not yet even really losing a freedom here or there, though it seems threatened on the horizon more and more all the time. But what today would, would make Christians be maligned, even if it's a more comfortable maligning, a less threatening maligning, than what Peter's readers were experiencing in the first century? Maybe you get made fun of at work for not cutting corners when the boss isn't looking. You know, that's a real goody-two-shoes thing to do, and, and they, they make fun of you for it. Or not lying to the boss about when you got in or, or what you got done. Everyone else does, and no one knows, and, and we're part of a crew here that covers for each other here. We punch each other in, even though we're not on time. And, and you refuse to do that now that you're a Christian. It's changed. And in some way, they mock you, and you experience small-p persecution for it. You used to ogle the women with the guys, and now you don't. You used to get drunk with the guys, and now you don't. You used to listen to filthy jokes, and, and now you can't. and you've now committed to Sunday morning for the meeting of the church, and fishing is it's going to have to be some other time. It didn't matter now. It doesn't matter now when you used to do it with the boys. Or believing certain things like creation, or not embracing certain things in the culture, refusing to say peace, peace when there is no peace, not doing certain things that you used to do, not doing certain things that everyone around you does, being made fun of for being an adult virgin. In some ways, this is some kind of Christian persecution, especially where people around us tie it to us being Christians and not just us being moral or good. If they know that we do these things and don't do others because Christ says so, because we're Christians, because we went his way, then we're blessed. We're blessed. We can rejoice. Peter's not calling us Christians to cut ourselves off from the rest of the world when we become a Christian. No, he expects that the world will see our conduct, remember? He, he hopes that they will ask us about the hope that's within us. He calls on those who have unbelieving husbands to stay with those unbelieving believing husbands as live-in missionaries. He calls on those who have unbelieving bosses to stay and honor them He calls on those who are in secular governments to stay in honor. But he expects that these Christians and us, by extension, will demonstrate the lordship of Christ before that watching world. Now, it would be careless for us to just pull verses from 1 Peter related to suffering and trials and, and apply them to every trial. I think I used to read 1 Peter like that. You come to a verse like chapter 4, verse 12, don't be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And I would think about that and go, yeah, fiery trial. I I had one of those last year. I almost died from a blood disorder. That was a fiery trial. Don't be surprised. Okay. Now, I think we could either take verses like that out of 1 Peter's context and Peter's meaning, And miss the fact that Peter is writing to persecuted people, not just suffering people. And yet, it'd also be unfortunate for us to just think about this as applicable to someone else at another time, or perhaps here and there when someone snickers that we're a Christian, or we think this or that. You see, whatever Peter says about the fiery trial that's about to come for these Roman Christians, how to prepare for it, how to think about it, Hope in the midst of it. Well, the same is also true for any trial, small or great. We know that from the rest of Scripture. So if Peter can say what he does to those in the first century about the fiery trial, talking about that sanctioned, legal, state-sponsored persecution and execution that's about to come their way, If he can say what he does about that to these Christians, then any lesser trial can also be navigated by the same rules. It can also be buoyed up by the same promises. You see, from hangnails to being hanged, and everything in between, there's some things we can say about it, according to Scripture. We can say, That God is in it. He's sovereign over it. That somehow there are divine purposes for it. Mysterious as they might be. We can say in every instance of suffering, the Lord is limiting it. He's keeping us from more than we deserve and, and more than we could have. If only limiting it by time. It won't last forever. We can say of every trial, we know that he's with us through it. That he's doing something in it and through it for us and for others. We know that in every trial, whether it's persecution or whether it's just everyday frustration... We can say with Romans 5 that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame. And we can say with 2 Corinthians 4 that we have the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. Fragile, dry, crusty clay in order to show that the surpassing power that we have is from God and not from us. We can say with James 1, to ourselves and to our brothers and sisters in suffering, count it all joy when you go through various trials, for you know that the trying of your faith produces steadfastness. And we can say with Joseph of the Old Testament, when he responded to his brothers for their evil done to him, he he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We don't always see the good. I would dare say we rarely see the full extent of the good. I don't know whether we'll know the full extent of the good in the new heaven and the new earth. where We haven't been told that we will. We like to think that. I'm going to find out what that was all about when I get to heaven. Well, maybe. Maybe not. It doesn't matter. We can trust him. He's doing a billion things more than you could comprehend, even if he listed them all. But especially with persecution, there's this key thing here. In a sense, all trials produce a kind of testing, but especially with persecution, it says, it comes upon you, verse 12, to test you. To test you. It shows who's in and who's out. It does a kind of purification Remember what Jesus said about the four soils in that parable in Matthew 13? Listen to two of these soils that Jesus talked about. These are like people who hear the gospel, have a response, uh, and then let's see how it goes. Well, there are those who, who see the seed was sown on rocky ground. And they hear the word, and it, it immediately receives it with joy, this rocky ground, but there's no root. And so it endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution comes, it falls away. It falls away. Don't be that second soil. Don't be the third soil where the seed was sown among the thorns. That one hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches Choke it out, and it proves unfruitful. What we want instead is that fourth soil where there's growth that lasts, and it's different from one person to the next. Sometimes it's 30-fold growth or 60-fold growth or 100-fold growth, but, but it's growth, and it's God-given growth. It's miraculous. Do you have that? When testing comes upon you, does it prove your faith? Like Peter said in 1 Peter 1, it's like gold that gets purified. When the heat comes, does it prove to be the stuff that lasts and it's actually better from the fire? Or instead, is it all melted away? Is it fastly, disappear, quickly disappearing? Don't think it's a strange thing when trials come upon you, or... Don't think it's a strange thing if a fiery trial comes upon Christians in the 21st century United States. Don't think it's a strange thing. Instead, rejoice. Rejoice in its identification with Christ, verse 13 tells us. Verse 14 as well. Rejoice as you look to its completion, he says in verse 13, that you also may rejoice when his glory is revealed. Yes, make sure it's not a suffering for sin. That's what verse 15 and 16 say. Make sure you're not suffering because you're an, an evildoer, because you're a murderer, a thief, or a, a, a troublemaker. Don't call that Christian suffering. But if you're suffering for, for Christ, then don't be ashamed by it. Glorify God in it. This leads to our last here that Peter is making about how we cultivate a different way of thinking. Fourth, we cultivate a different way of thinking about judgment and eternity. At the end of our first section and at the end of our second section, we see judgment. So in verse 5 it says, those who malign you one day, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, those who've died and those who are still alive They will give an account. It's a courtroom picture. They will give an account of what they've done. And outside of Christ, all will be found wanting. In verse 6, he says, This is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This doesn't mean that The gospel was preached to those who are dead like a second chance for salvation. We talked about that a little bit last week. It's not part of what the Bible teaches. We know we can rule that out. What does it mean then when Peter says the gospel was preached to those who are dead? Just like last week, he's saying the gospel was preached to those who are now dead because they were judged in the flesh the way people are. They died. Even though they had the gospel, they believed the gospel, they embraced it while they were still alive, yet they still died, but here's the hope. That though they died, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. They might live with God forever and ever, and one day have a new body and soul like Jesus, who has led us through this path from death to resurrection. And then I said, the second passage we looked at this morning ends in judgment as well. It's confusing, it's a head scratcher. but here's what it says in verse 17. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What's he talking about? Well, he's not saying judgment for God's people in suffering is payment. He doesn't mean judgment like payment. He means judgment like testing, like proving. It's time for judgment to begin with God's people first. There's almost an end time like judgment that's already here and on its way. It has been since the first century when Christians are tested by sword, by peril, by maligning, by Starvation by embarrassment or temptation to be embarrassment. That judgment at the end has already started with us. And if it's through that kind of difficulty, that's what verse 18 means, if the righteous is scarcely saved, doesn't mean rarely saved, it means with difficulty, then what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What will it say about those? who are now against Christ or outside of Christ? What will it say? Are you in Christ? Do you have his forgiveness? Do you believe he died in your place? Do you believe that his righteousness is yours? Do you believe that when he was raised from the dead, that was a signal of your victory in him, not just his? Do you believe in what he said? Do you believe in what he did? Do you believe he did it for you? And like every Christian, you've done a 180, haven't you? Because none of us are born like that. None of us are born thinking that. Has that 180 come in your life yet? We pray it has. We'd love to help you with pursuing that and praying for it and and seeking the Lord while he may be found. Christian, we're to keep cultivating a certain way of thinking. The battle is one of the mind, it's one of the heart, it's one on the inside. We keep thinking like Christ. We don't always change the circumstances around us because we can't always do that. Where we can, sure. We're not sadists. We don't just heap up persecution, trouble, and suffering for ourselves because it gets us merit with God and makes us more pure. No, no, no. Whatever comes, it comes because it comes, not because we've pursued it. But where it comes, we arm ourselves with the Christ like way of thinking. We went Jesus' way. And so we prepare even in days of ease for those days of winter. In times of peace, we could say, we heap up in the stockpiles missiles, and bullets, and guns, and swords. And these are the bullets and guns and swords of Jesus and his ways and his words. So we go to the Bible and we drink long from his word, which is milk and satisfaction and strength for us. And then when persecution comes, we're not surprised by it. It's not shocking to us. It's not shocking today that Christians are more and more on the outside looking in or seem like they're from another century no, we are to be patient, and we're to endure, and we're to set our hope fully on his return. We're not to fear men, we're to fear God. You know, we know delayed gratification as a worthy principle for so much of life, don't we? And we all know that retirement is about delayed gratification. You put some aside now that you could have spent right now but you put it aside for later so you can have it later. Diet. I would love to eat chili cheese fries for most meals. Almost everything's better fried. White gravy would be a decent beverage. (laughs) But I can't do that. Right? None of us can. We eat like we do because, well, it's delayed gratification. And then we treat ourselves every now and then. Or we do exercise because Well, not because you love running five miles. Maybe you do now, but you didn't when you started. You started because of what it would do. On and on we could go, education or yard work or cleaning up the house. We know delayed gratification, except we Christians are shaken and surprised when suffering comes. And we say, what is this? Something is wrong in the plan of God. He doesn't see, he doesn't know, he doesn't seem to care. But he does, he does, he does. He not only knows and he cares, but he's good and he's doing something good. And you can't see it yet. He's building spiritual muscles that haven't yet popped out. Haven't yet shown themselves to your flabby skin. But he'll keep working. Because faithful is he who began it. He will complete it. So in short, in just one more verse, and I'll just read it. Verse 19. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your your bold, direct, direct, clear teaching to us to endure to embrace hardship for the cause of Christ to not be shaken by hardship as though he didn't see or didn't care help us to know you're good you're wise help us to know it through your word not just because circumstances will change they may and we can pray for that we thank you for that Lord we thank you that you also say in your word we don't have because we didn't ask Help us to ask in faith. Help us to ask trusting you. Help us to pray like Jesus taught us to. That first and foremost your name would be hollowed or made holy. And that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you'd give us what we need for this day. Give us food. And, and lead us not into temptation, Lord. Keep us from evil. Make us go your way for your glory. For your namesake in this world, may it be so. Amen.